Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, or literally when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to make merry. That's what I heard when I heard that banjo. <laughs> and they began to make merry. There's going to be banjos in heaven. I am absolutely sure there's going to be banjos in heaven. They began to make merry. Oh, there's a lot of emotions in this story. Oh, it is all over the emotional map. Well... Let's see if we can come close to doing justice to this word of Jesus. Let me, let me bring you up to date now. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter set the stage for everything in the chapter. What Jesus is doing in all the parables. We've seen two of them. Now here's a third one. What he's doing in all these parables is answering the accusation this man receives Sinners and eats with them. See that in verse 2? The, the Pharisees and the scribes say, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Because in verse 1, all the tax gatherers and sinners, people like prostitutes and others who made their living in disreputable ways, were coming to him. And instead of pushing them away or in any way communicating that he doesn't have anything to do with those kind of people, he was somehow communicating a receptivity and was eating with them. Now, I want to say a word about this word receive before we move on. He was receiving sinners and eating with them. Luke uses that word receive, prosdechomai in the Greek, six other times in his writings, in Luke and Acts. Every time it means 
to eagerly await for and expect and look for. For example, Luke 2.25, Simeon was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. Luke 2.38, Anna the prophetess spoke to those who were eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. Luke 12.36, Jesus says, be like men who are eagerly awaiting the return of the bridegroom. This word is not a passive word, just kind of watching people come toward you. This is a word that is looking for the second coming. It's looking for the bridegroom. It's He's late and where are we? And that's the way Jesus was receiving sinners. It's not a passive thing here. Jesus is after sinners. He came to pursue sinners. He's not just accidentally watching them approach him. He is welcoming. He is yearning for. He's on the lookout for. He's eager about this. And these scribes and Pharisees cannot interpret this in any positive way, given their framework. They only have suspicions what is going on here, and they accuse him. This man receives sinners and eats with them. What does it mean? Answer number one, verses three to seven. It means it's like a shepherd who finds a lost sheep and then throws a party. Answer number two, verses 8 to 10. It's like a woman who lost a tenth of her income, a coin, a very valuable coin, and she sweeps until she finds the coin and she throws a party. That's what's happening when I eat with sinners. And some of them got it and some of them didn't. He said in verses 7 and 10 real clearly what he meant. He said, now, if you don't get it, the lost sheep and the lost coin are lost sinners. The coming back and being found is repentance. And the party is what's happening right now in heaven among the angels and God the Father. They are so happy about my receiving tax collectors and sinners because it's coming home. It's being found by the Father. So he's saying, in effect, and this is what we saw last week was so offensive to many He's saying, in effect, I am the love of God incarnate. I am the love of God coming into the world, reaching out for sinners. And when I welcome them, God welcomes them. This is a little piece. This eating right now with sinners is a little piece of what's happening in heaven as they rejoice. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who comes to me than over 99 who don't need any repentance. So coming to Jesus is coming home to the Father. And this meal in verse 2 is a reflection of what's happening in heaven. God is very, very glad that Jesus is doing what he's doing. Now, answer number three. What is going on when you receive sinners and eat with them, Jesus? Answer, it is like a father who is finding a son, and then throwing a party. So there are three similarities in each of these parables. Verse 6, rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. Throw a party. Verse 9, rejoice with me, I have found the coin I had lost. Throw a party. Verse 24 is the key link up here now. Verse 24, this son of mine was lost and has been found. Let's throw a party. These three parables all have one message. Something was lost. 
Something was aggressively pursued and found, and there is joy in heaven. There are banjos in heaven going off when Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now just stop here a minute, and let's pose a question. Why did Luke put this down? And why do I preach it? What's the goal of Luke recording this as a unit? And what's the goal of me preaching it as a unit? What's it got to do with 1995? On Friday of this past week, did you read this? 68 bodies in wooden boxes with yellow tags were put in a 186-long trench in Homewood, Illinois, just outside Chicago, and then bulldozed over and buried. These were 68 people who had died in the last month and had accumulated in the medical examiner's office in Chicago because nobody knew who they were. Every month in Chicago, they haul boxes out to Homewood, Illinois, with yellow tags, dig a trench, three feet times 20 or three times 30 long, set them in there and bulldoze it over. Because nobody knows them. They hold the bodies for a month or so until the research is done. And then when nobody comes forward... They bury him. And last Friday, there were 30 employees from the coroner's office and other city offices who were willing to stand there and pay some kind of respects to people who seem to be absolutely lost on this society. Lost. So when I read it, thinking about my sermon, I felt, now there is a kind of lostness. I mean, you know... You lost, there's nobody. The headlines, I said, I can't remember quite what it said in the Tribune, but people who nobody knows about, or they don't have any connections whatsoever. And then I thought, is that absolute lostness? And my immediate answer was, that is not absolute lostness. It is better to die unknown by six million people in Chicago than it is to die unknown by God. Absolute lostness is when the dirt is pushed over and God doesn't know you. There's been no coming home. There's been no repentance. There's been no reconciliation. There's only been alienation in the far country and you enter eternity known by nobody in heaven. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's absolute lostness. And I felt, I just kind of sat there looking at the newspaper and I thought, now if I feel a kind of trembling, fearful sense of alienation at 68 bodies whom nobody knew, how much more should I tremble at the prospect of entering eternity with God Almighty not knowing having no relationship to me. 
Luke 15, as I've posed the question, why this chapter? Why should I preach on it? Luke 15 is about the love of God coming into the urban Chicago, the suburban Chicago, and the urban Minneapolis and the suburban Twin Cities. It's about God's love coming into those cities and searching like a woman for a coin, like a shepherd for a sheep, like a father running out to a son for people who are absolutely lost. And many don't even know it or care about it. It's about a story of destitution at our front door yesterday morning. It's about Noel listening to the story. It's about her getting in the car and going to a landlord and shelling out 20 bucks and then carrying a woman to the apartment and coming home and knowing almost 90% we were taken. That's what it's about. And believing with all your might, this is the will of God. God doesn't call you to be shrewd. Nowhere in the Bible are you called to be clever, to outwit the scammers. It's not your, that's not your calling. Your calling is to love people at risk. That's your calling. Luke 15 is about a God who sacrifices tremendously in order to have back what is his own. So if you ask me, is the point of preaching on Luke 15 to try to get these people to be like Jesus? All of us go out, eat with tax collectors and sinners. You know what my answer would be? Not first. My goal first is to get you to look at Jesus. Look at him. That's what I want you to do now for the next 20 minutes or so is, is to look at him. Look at Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Concentrate on Jesus. See what kind of man he was. See how he lived. See who it was whom you say you love. Whom you say you trust. Whom you say you follow. Whom you say he is our Lord. Just look at him. Absorb him. Soak in the presence of Jesus. That's what I want to happen first. Because I believe with all my heart that if we soak, if we soak in this Jesus... If we just let this Jesus and the way he's acting here and the way he's talking here in the pictures he makes here soak us, you will scarcely be able to restrain yourself from being like him. The way he is will be so beautiful to you because of what it has meant to you and because of what it means to others and because of what it means in the universe that this is the kind of God we have and this is the kind of Savior we have. How, how could you say, I love that kind of Savior. My life hangs on that kind of Savior. Only grace. And then turn and treat people the opposite. It's impossible. And therefore, my first goal is not to get you to be that way. But to see that way. The biggest challenge in preaching is to open your eyes. Not to change your lives. God will do that. And he will do it in the most powerful internal way. 
so that it doesn't feel like chains, but like a release, a bursting out, like, like I'm so much not yet. I mean, that was a little success story yesterday. Here's a failure story. Um, Wednesday, Tuesday, I can't remember. We woke up in the middle of the night to this awful wail. One or two of you in the neighborhood might have heard just a wail like I've never heard. A wail. Just, I mean, I've never heard anything like it. We saw coming down the sidewalk. I couldn't tell how old he was. Noel guessed 12, I guessed 14. And he walked by the sidewalk and he was wailing at the top of his lungs. 1 a.m. or so. And I didn't go out. And so when I, when I say I need to see Jesus and you need to see him... I'm in process, folks, and I want to be the kind of person who doesn't calculate the danger. Who doesn't calculate egg on the face. Maybe he'll give me four, four-letter words if I say, can I help you? I did that to a guy who came back at me. I said to him at the door, I'm sorry. He said, is that all you are? You... That is irrelevant to love. So there's a little success and there's a a big failure. And I want your prayer. Just pray, God, make our pastor like what he preaches so that there's authenticity in the pulpit and authenticity in this congregation. And when people come in here and we go out in the city, we are filled with visions of Jesus. Just filled with visions of Jesus. Now, what's different about this parable? Let's look at him. What's different about this parable than the other two, the coin and the sheep, is that here you have a description of the misery of lostness. You didn't have that in the others. Here we have a description of repentance. You didn't have that in the others. And here we have the lavishness and the enthusiasm of the receiving father, which we didn't see as clearly in the others. Let's just take those one at a time. First of all, the description of the misery of lostness. Here's a son who runs away. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. If you run away from God, if you say, I'm out of here, I'm going to do my own thing, it will feel free. For a while. Nobody would do it if it didn't, right? (laughs) You wouldn't run away if it didn't feel good. It feels so free. Do your own thing. No burden of anybody telling you what to do. Until your money's gone, which is his. He gives you life and breath and everything that you might worship and love him. It's gone. And then famine. Verse 14 now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be in need. Where would that come from? Where would the famine come from? What's the meaning of that famine? Whose design is that and what for? Can't press it too far. Just ask you the question. You can't squeeze every little detail of a parable. But I just say, why did Jesus toss that in there? I mean, he was out of money already. Why a famine, Lord? Why Oklahoma City? Why Kobe, Japan? Loose living 
in verse 13 means reckless, wild, abandoned. It's like skydiving. Right? Until you realize you don't have a parachute on. Feels so good. The wind just... Mm. And then you wake up, maybe. I don't have any parachute on. And the whole experience is transformed for you. Verse 15. And he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. If you break your attachment with God, you will be attached to something or somebody. It may be drugs, which is a hard slave master in our society. It may be alcohol. It may be money. It may be illicit sex. It may be an employer. It may be a spouse. It may be a sport or hobby. It may be television. It may be a computer with Windows 95. It may be a lake cabin. It may be... You name it. It could be, it could be crude, a crude thing that you attach yourself to so that your life is an absolute wretch and mess. Or it could be a refined thing that you attach yourself to so that many people say, whoa, they have a nice life. And in either case, in either case, you're going to eat swine's food in the end. Forever. If you break your attachment with God, you will be attached to something because your heart is one great void vacuum. Just please satisfy me. And you will go to a person. You'll go to a job. You'll go to booze. You'll go to computers. You'll go anywhere because your heart is made for God. And God is big. And therefore the hole is broad when you cut yourself off from him. And it takes a lot to fill it. And nothing works. Nothing. Nothing. And so we have a. A man here who is discovering what happens when you detach yourself from God. Verse 16, he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving him anything. So it really doesn't matter whether you have nine billion dollars or whether you are buried in Homewood, Illinois. In the end... You will go to the swine troughs if you detach yourself from God. So don't, don't say, oh, this parable is not true of me away from God because I haven't run out of money. I figured out how to make money. I haven't had the famine. I can control things. Don't, don't say that because you're setting yourself up for a big, fall at that moment. It will come. It will come. So there's the description of misery that comes from cutting yourself off from God. Now here's the second thing. Namely, the description of repentance. Let's read verses 17 on. But when he came to his senses, I don't know why the NASB does that. It's when, it, when he came to himself. We'll come back to that in a minute. When he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. 
And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, there are three elements of repentance in those verses. Number one, he comes to himself. Have you ever analyzed that phrase? He comes to himself. Coming to God and coming to yourself happen in one act of repentance. Nobody truly knows himself if he is cut off from God and doesn't know God. And the reason is very simple. You were made by God, like God, for God. And if you don't know God, you don't know you. And the great chaos in America is owing to two levels of massive ignorance. We don't know God, and therefore we don't know what humanity is. We don't know what human life is for. We don't know why we exist. Why are we working? Why are we having children? Why are we here? Where did we come from anyway? It is all a big mess. Which is where, in talking to some of you recently, this whole evolutionary thing becomes really crucial. Because those are right who reflect on this and say that evolution is very near a root of the problem. I'm not sure it is the root of the problem. Not knowing God. Not knowing God is first. And then not knowing what is humanity. Is it just an evolved higher animal? Or is it made by God, in the image of God, for the glory of God? And if you know those three things and you yield to them, you have repented. That's the first thing that repentance is. Repentance is a, an awakening to the fact that God made me like Him for Him. And I am not a piece of protoplasm or mere animal or an accident in the universe. Here's the second element of repentance. Verse 18. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer to be called worthy to be called your son. Repentance is a humble brokenheartedness when you contemplate how you've offended God. To go your own way, to say, I'm done, Father, I want out of this thing, so I'm off to decide for myself what to do. When you wake up, to the fact that you were made for God and you were made like God and you were made for the glory of God. And you turn and you see how you have so terribly offended the God of the universe. You will tremble. You will say, I am not worthy. He has no, I have no rights before him. He doesn't owe me anything. If I were to come home, it would be sheer grace that he would accept me. That's repentance number two. The third element of repentance, verse 17. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I'll go up and go to my father. Now, let's think about this very carefully because right here, there's a bad mistake made on the way many people come home. Or try to come home to God. It would be very easy to take this text and interpret it to mean, well, if I've blown it as a son, I can make it as a slave. If I've blown it as a son, I'll make it as a slave. I'll work. I'll work for him. Now, you, you can see that. That, that. That's right there almost in the text, isn't it? I'll go home and I'll be a hired hand. I'll say, I'll be a hired hand. 
And my, my question to you, in view of the larger context of this chapter and in view of other things Jesus said, isn't this the focus of this man at this point? What he's saying is this. Look what I have scorned. Look what I have left behind. My father's heart is a bountiful heart. My father's rich. Look what he, even, even his servants get this. He might as well have said, even the crumbs from his table would be enough to satisfy my heart right now. I think repentance at this point is awakening to the fact that the God you have left, thinking there was no life there, it wasn't fun like it was down in the faraway country, that God is so satisfying, so rich, so lavish, so full, so abundant, so all-sufficient, that if you were to go home to Him, no matter what lowly stage you had in that whole farm, it would be like an avalanche of blessing. I think that's, that's repentance. Repentance is awakening to the glory of God's all-sufficiency and saying, I've got nothing here anymore. My God is so great and so full that if I just go home and lay down at His feet and say, you don't owe me anything It'll be great. It'll be great. It'll be glorious. So that's repentance. And with that, he comes home. Now let's watch, finally, the lavish enthusiasm of the father to this boy coming home. This is where it starts to get real emotional. And I can't help but think that Jesus filled these words up with emotion-laden words because he meant for us to feel it. There are, I'm going to boil it down to six photographs for you, just six quick photographs as we close. And what you're to see in these photographs is this. As you sit there, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian this morning. You either believe or you don't believe. You've either repented and come home to the Father or you haven't. If you haven't, what I want you to see in these photographs is the way he will receive you when you come. If you repent... And turn your back on that junk you've been in and come home to the Father and say, I'm dirty, I'm needy, you're all I, I have. I come through Jesus to you. Save me. And if you are a Christian, I want you to see how he felt about you when you came and continues to feel about you as you continue coming through the gospel. Number one photograph, verse 20. The son got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Photograph number one. The father eyeing the road and seeing the son a long way off. God is not so busy running the universe that his eye is not on the homeward road. God is totally in charge of his affairs. They are in order and nothing is about to be dropped. There are no balls that he's juggling that he cannot juggle behind his back with no hands. He is totally in charge and therefore his heart is free to be for others. And he sees his boy before anybody else sees him. Is that remarkable or what? I mean, there are slaves all over the place, and his older brother is outside. We'll talk about that next week and why he didn't see him. He didn't see him. He didn't even know he was there until he heard the music. Something wrong there. But there's nothing wrong in the father's heart. So picture number one, he sees him. God sees every twitch of your soul before anybody else sees it.
and he's moving your way. But that leads us to number two, still in verse 20. When he saw him afar off, he felt compassion. Stop there. That word compassion is a word for a lot of inner emotion here. Now, some of you fathers and mothers know what it's like to have a child run away from home. Or you can imagine it. And the days go by. And then, with all the anxiety and all the guilt and all the wonderings of what you did wrong, a phone call. You make it. She makes it. He makes it. And the rendezvous is established. And as you approach the place, you see the child. And you are filled with compassion. The emotion is willing at that moment to virtually blot out everything under the sun that led up to this moment in your lives. And Jesus wants you to know that your father receives you home like that. Third photograph, still in verse 20. And he ran. Stop. I love this picture. (laughs) This guy's middle-aged, all right? He's middle-aged. He's my age or older, probably. And uh, he's dignified because he owns, he owns a lot of land. He's got servants everywhere that do his beck and his call. You've got to maintain a certain decorum when you've got servants who do what you say. And you're the head and you're the kind of CEO type and you have long flowing robes and you wear nice rings and your hair is always just right in the way that professional barbers make it. And there is a certain way you're supposed to be and it isn't running. I mean, picture it. I thought I might try it this morning, but but I, I won't. You, you all know I run. I play basketball. It's not hard to imagine me running, but I mean, dignified people. I mean, picture, I could name a man that I cannot picture running, but I won't name it because he'd be very offended. <laughs> but there are people who can't, you can't picture running. Now, he ran. And when he ran... He reached down, he pulled those robes up here, and he ran. He ran. He didn't just go like this. He ran. And while he was running, he gave all decorum to the wind. Now, when you see an older person running, either they're in tremendous danger, (laughs) or they are so happy they can't stand still. And that's what he was. There was no danger. Those are the only two explanations for why an older person would just run as fast as they could. He ran. He didn't just walk. He didn't just wait. He's coming home. We'll see if he's repentant or not. He ran. Let that image stay. I dwell on it because you need images when you come home from sin. You need images from the Bible to remind you of what God is like in receiving you. Photograph number four, still in verse 20. And he embraced him. And kissed him. Now Jesus didn't have to say this. I'm not pressing these words for emotional effect. He didn't have to say that. He could have stopped with ran and brought him home. Or he could have said embraced and not kissed. Jesus is doing this for you. 
He wants you to feel something here. He wants you to see a certain kind of father because a lot of you in here never had a father who kissed you. Or some fathers who kissed in all the wrong ways. And there's a whole glorious reparenting that this parable wants to do for you. He wants you to see a a pure embrace. Our Father is absolutely pure and very physical. Absolutely pure and very physical. Mm. I used to have on my wall, and I I looked for it last night in my file because I can't believe I threw it away. For years and years and years, cut out of Decision Magazine, I had a father and son embrace on my wall, and I could hardly look at it without crying. It was a long-haired 60s kid and a dad probably in his late 30s, early 40s, and the embrace was just like this, and all you could see was the father's face right here and the boy's long hair over the father, under the father's arms, and the father's just... We all know the emotions that that is. And, and right now, you know, it wouldn't be hard to linger on this and really, and really, I don't want to manipulate your emotions. But everybody probably right now has somebody you can think about that you want to come home. You want to come home from sin or come home from an alienated relationship. Uh, and you can imagine them coming Broken-hearted, arms extended, admitting that it's been a mess, wanting reconciliation, and what that embrace would be like and what that kiss would be. That's the way the Father receives you home. Fifth photograph, verse 22, after the boy's confession. The Father said to his slave, quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, this is a lavish welcome. The best robe, the best robe. He's got an, he's got an elder son. Put the best robe on this boy. In other words, son, I'm going to do everything I can to communicate to you that you're not here as a slave. You're here as a son and you're not here as a second class son. You're here as a first class best kind of son. That's what that robe means. Not slave, but son. The enthusiastic, unrestrained restoration to the family. Final photograph, number six, verse 23. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and make merry. God makes merry. God starts the banjo playing in heaven. Martin Luther, i close with this quote, Martin Luther from 400 years ago said, if I could believe that God were not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Have you ever wrestled that deeply with whether God is not angry with you? I think the point of this parable is come home, come home. And what you will find as you approach the homeward road, as you get near the driveway, as you turn the corner in the neighborhood, that he is already 
tuning the banjo. I think you should ask yourself the questions, what do I hear in the voice of God when he says, this son of mine was dead and is alive. This son of mine was lost and is found. Let us begin to make merry. What do you hear? I'm going to invite Glenn and the worship team to come and to, when I'm done praying here, let's lead us in a song. And we'll stand and you can linger and sing it with them. And if you need to go, you can go. If you want to come and talk about any of this, the prayer teams would love to pray with you about your need this morning. Anything at all, I'll be here at the front. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, my heart's desire and my heart is weak compared to your heart as I read this parable. But my heart's desire, and if mine is, how much more yours? is that every person in this room would come home. Some live in the lap of the Father with sweet, continual fellowship. Others are more prone to wander. Lord, they feel it. Prone to leave the God they love. Bring them on home again in a fresh way this morning. And others here have never broken off with unbelief and sin in a decisive way and need to renounce Satan and all his ways and sin in all its works and come home toward this gloriously receptive Father. Would you do that, Father, as we close and as we sing and as we go and as we pray, would you bring your people home? Amen.